Welcome to the teacher's lounge. Now, I know what you're thinking. I like to avoid the teacher's lounge because there's too much gossip and complaining going on. You know what? I agree with you, but this teacher's lounge is different. In this teacher's lounge, I take the time to interview some of my friends and colleagues from all across the country and even the world to talk about teaching, different topics that matter, and how using comprehensible input strategies can work to make all of their students successful. So I hope you enjoy your trip to the teacher's lounge and that you enjoy today's episode. I'm super excited for you to hear Jody Stoddick's story today on the transition that she has made in her own teaching practice from teaching with a textbook to teaching with completely comprehensible input strategies. She has made that transition slowly over time because she saw a need for a change in her own practice and also for the students so that they could be more successful, they could find joy in class, they could love language learning, and honestly, to be more equitable to reach all of her students. So I hope you enjoy hearing Jody's story, and I hope you can take away a few tips about how to mesh the textbook with some simple, easy-to-use CI strategies. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of The Teacher's Lounge. I am super excited to welcome one of my best friends um, and Spanish teacher, Jody Stodic. And you will never guess the spelling of her name, so just wait until you see it in the title. <laughs> I'm also going to be linking her YouTube page in the description on Anchor later, so you can check out her teaching videos because she's awesome, You're even if kind. she doesn't always agree with it. Um, but she is a fantastic teacher, and I would highly recommend you check out some of her videos if you're looking for some new strategies um, or just how to do some strategies with teaching with comprehensible input. And I'm going to link it for you because, again, the name spelling, it gets everyone. I didn't know how to pronounce her name until she told me. So Jody and I uh, met, it's really actually kind of a funny story. We met about a year and a half ago. Yeah, about right, yeah. Um, on the CI Liftoff Facebook page. And so I was on there doing a live video talking about our state conference. We both live in Wisconsin. And I went on there to talk about how, as teachers, once we start acquiring some of these new skills, maybe we should look at conferences in a new way. And instead of just going to attend sessions, that maybe we should start presenting and sharing more at sessions. And Jody sent me a message and we started talking and I mean, the rest is history. We have since presented at conferences together. Um, we get together all the time because some of her extended family lives um, in the city that I live in. And it's just been awesome getting to know her and see her teach. And I've been so inspired by her. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about how to incorporate comprehensible input CI when you're still having to use a textbook. Now I'm going to start off with a disclaimer because all of you that are listening to this, some of you might feel like, well, this doesn't apply because I don't have to teach with a textbook anymore. You might get something good out of it anyway, so I'd highly encourage you to continue listening. Or um, something to share with colleagues who, um, who do. Yeah, so that's a great point. Textbook. You might know someone who could benefit from some of these tips and some of these ideas that we're going to share today. And then also, I forgot what I was saying. It's totally fine. This is, this is like what, week nine of, of stay at home and quarantine? And so, oh yes, the other situations, it just came back to me. This is my life right now. This is what I sound like in my videos when I'm teaching children. I got distracted by a little Kool-Aid. Have you seen those like little Kool-Aid, not the pouches, 
but like the little juice plastic jug things. Oh yeah, with the twist off top. Yes, with the twist. I was like, I almost knocked one over when I was making a video for my students and I just like whipped it out in front of the camera and held it in their faces. I was like, let me just move my Kool-Aid out of the way. <laughs> They're probably jealous. And they probably think I'm a crazy person, but it's fine. It keeps it interesting. And so, you know, we know that you all have different situations and some of you are required to be very strict with the textbook. Some of you have common assessments. Some of you have more freedoms and you, as long as you cover the themes or the topics, you're good to go. We're not going to be able to dive into every situation today. And maybe we'll make more episodes in the future talking about more specific situations. But for day, today, we just want to give you some, some easy tips that you can take back and maybe start implementing. Obviously, maybe not this year, um, but next year or moving forward. So I am going to ask Jody to share a little bit about her kind of teaching journey with you all so you can kind of get to know her a little better before we dive into the hard hitting textbook and CI combo. So welcome Jody, thank you for coming. I'm delighted to get to be here and hang out with you and spend a little time together. Um, yeah, so this is, uh, I just wrapped up or am just wrapping up my eight year of teaching and you know- I feel like that's the, a lie. It, because I've been teaching for eight years and you're older than me. Is it nine years? How long have I been teaching? I graduated college in 2012. I don't even know how old I am anymore. <laughs> you're like, I am so 857 I years old. <laughs> That's what it feels well, like at least. Anyway, she's been teaching a while. <laughs> things that I do know for sure. This is the third school that I've taught at. Um, so when I, when I started teaching, each situation has been similar in some ways and, and also very different. Um, all three schools have been really small hometown schools. I have a lot of kids from several different small towns uh, in the area coming together at the same location. Um, all three have been fairly low socioeconomic um, schools overall. And at all three schools, I was the one and only Spanish teacher for Spanish one all the way up through Spanish four. Hashtag department of one. Woo woo, one these. Um, which is actually, you know, it's a thing that I loved and I really sought out. And as I was looking for a position to, to find my home at, because, you know, it's really important for you as an educator to find some place that suits you as well as you're a good fit for, for that position. You know, it's, it's gotta be mutual. Um, and the reason that I left each of those two prior jobs were, you know, the, the first one I, I got engaged and, and when we got married, it was just going to be too, too long of a hike. So I sadly had to leave that place. And then, um, for my most recent position, my, my mom retired from her Spanish teaching job here. And then I applied and was really delighted to get offered the position here. And so now I am, I am home back at the school that I graduated from teaching my, you know, people who I've grown up with and, and their kids and their cousins and, and all that kind of weird small town stuff. But it's really fun because I have, I do have a ton of freedom, but even with that freedom, you know, I've had freedom at every place that I've taught, but I've dealt with it in very different ways. When I started teaching, I was exclusively using a textbook because I had no idea what else to do. And how did you learn when you were a student? I was a textbook taught student. Me too. With a kind of a, you know, uh, 
with an asterisk, I guess. Because <laughs> as much as I was textbook taught, I really lean into seeking out anything that I could read, any music I could listen to, any songs I could learn. Um, I'd like if my shampoo bottle was in Spanish, I would want to figure out what everything said on my shampoo bottle. So I had this tendency to seek out the real life applications and the input yourself. Yeah, I did. And, and I wouldn't have known that that's what it was. Right. But as I grew as an instructor and I felt like frustrated that my students couldn't do things that I was able to do, I couldn't figure out why. And I thought, you know, I had a textbook and they have a textbook. I'm doing the same kind of things that my mom did as a teacher. So why is it not sticking? Why are they not getting as much joy out of it as I was getting out of it? I, of course, know that there are personality differences and motivational differences, but as I developed as an educator and had a better sense for how my students were reacting to material, there were things that would stand out as perking them up and hooking their interest. And those were the things that I really started to lean into, even as I was still using a textbook. Um, and eventually, I slowly stepped back from being so reliant on the textbook and created a lot of my own materials. And, and now I would say that I teach using almost exclusively strategies to deliver comprehensible input to my students. Yeah, that's awesome. And so is there, it's really interesting to hear you say that you kind of slowly dabbled into yeah. these strategies because I did too. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why we connected so much when we first started talking is because we have a very similar story where I hear of teachers all the time that are like, I just threw the book out the window and jumped in. And like, yeah. that is not me. Um, I couldn't do that for my personality. It didn't, you know, it didn't make sense for me. I was like way too anxious to deal with that. And I also feel like, you know, there's a lot of situations that many of the people listening right now, that's just not a reality that they have. Oh, it's just not possible. Yeah, for sure. And no, so I really developed one, you know, I heard one thing, one skill at a conference that just made perfect sense. And it fit with this unit that I was trying to do with my students. And it was kind of floundering. It wasn't, it was not sparking joy for us. <laughs> and so as I was, as I was teaching it, uh, and heard this new idea, I thought I can do this. I can, I can insert this in next week and try this one thing and get good at it. And once I felt confident with that, then I added in one more tool and one more tool until I was pretty self-sufficient in, in not needing to use textbook all the time. Yeah, and I think that's awesome. And so I think we're hoping today that you'll get a couple of tips that maybe you can start implementing to kind of ease your way into delivering more input for your students, which is the only thing, as we know from research, that drives language acquisition. Without so, having to work harder. Yes. Yeah, and not make your lives too difficult, not having to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. There are definitely ways to step into this that don't require you to double your work hours. And in mm -hmm. fact, I would argue... I mean, really, honestly, this past school year, I think I only brought home work once or twice. Um, and so making, making that switch, even though it was slowly over a couple of years, is definitely worth investing in for your own uh, mental health and joy and the joy of your students in your classrooms as well. So we are going to, I'm first going to ask Jody to talk about a couple of tips that she might share with you 
if you are using a textbook and you don't want to create any new resources or you don't want to stray from it, how you can use what's already in your textbook to modify or change a few of those activities to give more input. Um, because we know that sometimes it's just not feasible to start with something totally new, but you already have these books, you already know these books and these exercises and these resources. So what are some small changes that we can make to make that more, um, more engaging and personalized for our students and really give them the input they need? Yeah, so one of the things that I, when I was pretty early into my teaching, I know eight years is still pretty early into my teaching. Or nine, I swear whatever. you taught longer than that. <laughs> We're going to have to after, okay, we will let you know. I will like put in the description how long after we verify this when we're done. <laughs> but so one of the things that frustrated me often was that when there were sort of fill in the blank or output related activities where my students had to come up with something to say that there they were so inaccurate and I would get frustrated because I thought it's modeled for you here. Like they show you how to write this sentence and it's clear. It's not that complex and they're still making errors. And part of it was just a mentality shift for me, recognizing that instead of really making errors, it more was just that they're showing me a reflection of how they picture the language to function. They're, they're still communicating the big ideas, even if some of the like precision is not there, if some of the accuracy is lacking. Um, but the only way that it got better was by seeing it done correctly 50 times or 100 times instead of that one model that they saw on the page. Um, and one way that I learned to combat that was to stop asking them to like create unique sentences as much on their own. So a lot of times they would have a reading and uh, maybe it would be a dialogue. You know, in one of my textbooks, you always knew what the next activity was. My students knew what the next activity was. It was always, here's the dialogue, answer questions about the dialogue, answer personal questions related to the dialogue somehow. Yes. Yep, it's, it's just too. kind of the classic <laughs> formula. And, you know, and it makes sense, but not only did all of my students complete it at vastly different rates of speed, which tended to get um, a lot of behavioral and classroom management issues, but they wouldn't always do it well or to the same standard. So, you know, if, if the um, dialogue that, that they were reading was about going on a vacation someplace, instead of asking them to individually work on this, and then we would maybe discuss it at the end. I just turn it into a simple true false out loud activity. So I would model the language for them. I would say the sentences, you know, Tomas wants to go on vacation. True or false? Thumbs up, thumbs down. And that would give them another opportunity to hear it correctly modeled without having to come up with it themselves. And I don't have to rewrite anything. It's right there. It's in the textbook. You know, all of the questions are, are basically scripted for you, but they don't actually have to look at the textbook in order for them to be able to complete the activity. So that's one that it's not going to take you any extra prep time. You can whip the book open, you can read it out loud to them, and you can have them do thumbs up, thumbs down responses without having to put in any extra prep time. And, and honestly, and that I appreciate 
the way that you're describing kind of changing this activity probably would save more class time and well, make and it more efficient. Anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it would make it more efficient because a lot of time in class, the kids are just like sitting there struggling, yep. suffering through it. Correct. When we can turn it into a double opportunity to save time, make it more efficient. Oh, that's three. Save time, make it more efficient <laughs> and give them that extra repetition of the sentence and hearing it correctly and mm -hmm. giving them more input that's going to drive their acquisition. And the so first few times awesome. that I did it, I worried that the students who weren't as confident were just looking to their more adept classmates to see their answers and that bothered me. And it took me a bit to realize that's actually okay because they're seeing it, they're seeing the correct response modeled and able to process oh, you know what? That is correct. He does want to go on vacation. And then when they hear it repeated again, it's able to click for them. And it just lowers, it lowers the stress for them. It lowers their affective filter um, and makes it something that they can just sit back and absorb a little better. And for those same activities, sometimes instead of it being a thumbs up, thumbs down, I'll just get them moving. And it's, you know, you go to the left. If it's true, you go to the right if it's false. And it, you know, gives them a little you know, way to break up the, the class period and keep their, their bodies moving and keep their blood flowing so that they're ready to listen a little bit more. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I think too, you could easily personalize that. Let's say, I, I know they love reading about these other random people that are made up and don't exist in textbooks. Oh, yes. um, but I think, you know, you could say, you know, oh, he wants to go on vacation, true or false and move mm -hmm. to the side or not. And then you could say in here, do you want to go on a vacation and move to yes. this side? If it's yes, move to this side. If it's no, or whatever that activity is, it could be, you know, who likes to play soccer. It could be who likes this or that. And that might engage them a little more too. Well, and that probably is, is my next biggest recommendation is to personalize it to your students. And, and sometimes when you hear personalization, it feels like it's going to mean reworking your whole curriculum so that, it applies specifically to your students, but that doesn't have to be the case. It can just really mean taking opportunities to hear how they feel, to hear their opinions, to get them to weigh in on something that already exists. You know, one of the big things that always, um, my telephone is ringing. Uh, you know what? Ring, ring, Give banana phone. Yeah, banana phone. <laughs> Give me about one That's second. Fine. No, and I think that I think everything that Jody is sharing with you guys while she takes care of that quickly is super is super useful. And I think it's oh my gosh! And now my phone is ringing. What is happening? My phone. And we're back. Okay. My phone was just ringing too, as you said that. We're a wow. hot mess, you guys. This Who's is the, this is the highlight. Right the highlight reel. R E A L. Uh huh. This is probably somebody looking for Kramer's loan ornaments <laughs> because I have their telephone number and they're out of business. <laughs> Oh they're going to leave me a message about how their Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs statues need to be repainted. Oh, man, they those, do. I've those four statues. Oh, that's so <laughs> crazy. But so back onto that idea of personalizing it to your students. Um, you know, a lot of times in, in my textbook, it would have he does or she does or they do or we do statements that use whatever vocabulary or grammar they're trying to highlight there. And it was something that unless I was going to rework my whole curriculum, I was, I, I wanted to be able to 
to modify to be able to personalize it without having to do a ton of work. Um, so I would just ask them very personal questions. So do you uh, like to, your, to go to your work? And they would respond. And then I would ask the rest of the class, okay, what did she say? Does she like to work? Where does she work? Does anybody else work there? Do you guys work there? Do you all like to work? Well, we do and they don't. I do and you don't. You know, it, it's so simple conversational to be able to hit all of our different, uh, you know, verb forms or tenses or whatever, whatever you want to hit. Uh, but actually make it about you and your class and your students without having to totally, um, you know, reinvent the wheel. Yes, that's I love not, that. It's completely untenable to think about, unless you're adopting a whole brand new fresh curriculum, to, to redo everything from scratch on your own. And it's not necessary either. You can still give really good input to your students and get them hearing good language models over and over and over again without having to um, to redo your, your whole curriculum. Yes, and so one of the things that I probably should have um, talked about or asked you to speak about before we talked about kind of using what's already in your book is those kind of qualities that you want to see if an activity has to see if it's mm. worth doing. And yeah. I know you and I, I'm, I'm putting you on the spot right now because I know we've, we've both presented on this before we presented together on this, but kind of what are some key things you look for to see if an activity is worth doing as it is without modifying it? Well, yeah. Because we talked about a couple of little modifications you can make to make it great input and make it more engaging, but some of the activities are good to go as they are. Yeah, totally true. Yeah, there are some that exist in my in my textbook already that I, I didn't feel like I needed to change because it did already. Well, one, it hooked kids. You know, they were already interested in it for whatever reason. Maybe it was the topic. Maybe it was just that it actually asked for their personal opinions and feedbacks and, and something about their life. Something, you know, maybe my number one criteria for most of my things is, is it going to let me connect with them? Is it going to let me, let them know me better and let me know them better or form this community little pod in our class? Because if we're all just there doing parallel tasks, but we might as well be doing it alone at home because it has no interconnectivity, that's not really... Uh, edifying for me. It's not, it, well, partly because I just really care about knowing my kids and, and letting them know how much I love them. <laughs> but, you know, so really, does it provide community? Um, another one is, is it going to use language that's actually useful? Huh. Yes, that's a great one. If it one. doesn't, <laughs> if it's not using super high frequency language for me, um, it's, if it's all about tape recorders and, and blouses. Uh, it's, there are things I need to tweak. Yeah. I think the and last I time do. I thought about that, I had kids actually ask me like, what is a blouse? Yeah. Do people still wear nylons? 
<laughs> Actually, I think quite a few do. Some people do. But, and some of the words have changed. Yes, they so have. So maybe even swapping out just some simple words instead of talking about your, your nylons or your stockings, mm -hmm. talking yeah, about stockings, your... Right, right. Talking about like leggings and things yep. that the kids actually wear. That's Scrunchy. Right. I don't even know if that's in my textbook, even though my old textbook is from the 90s. So, <laughs> I mean, that would be How high frequency like today. Yep. And it's always changing. And so I think being open to kind of modify and change some of that language is important too. Yeah, and I know sure. one of the things, you know, the biggest things too, I just want to add in is when you look at an activity, and I'm specifically thinking about verb activities. I have been, so I teach fifth through eighth grade Spanish and my students generally head off to very traditional high schools that focus on vocabulary and grammar. Mm -hmm. And so I try to expose the eighth graders to the vocabulary and the grammar worksheets and things so they know what to expect and they're not caught off guard um, and things like that when they move into high school. And so I was just recording a video today actually um, where we were filling in the blanks for conjugating verbs and you didn't even have to know what the verb meant. Well, that's what I was just going to say. Activity. Yeah. Are you actually being asked to show that you understood the language that you are interacting with to do the activity? Yeah, that's there huge. There are a lot of them where it'll, it'll have a whole sentence, but the only thing I have to actually do is look at the ending of one word to figure out what to drop in the blank. And if that's the case, if that's the only thing that I'm being asked to do, that's more like math than it is language acquisition. Um, and there are still ways to, to tweak that. I mean, it's not, it's not bad to know what goes in those blanks. That's a good thing. But instead of, you know, necessarily having that be the task that they are filling in the blanks, maybe instead you're giving them a completed sentence that uses that and, and they're telling you, is this true or is this not true? Not or even just a simple translation. Yeah. Or just, yeah, for sure. Do you understand what it means? Yeah. The comprehension, you know, it's one of the main reasons they call it comprehensible input is because the thing we want them to do is understand it and not just decode not just, um, you know, break down the linguistics of it, but do you know the idea that they're trying to get across? And as they go from, you know, novice learners to intermediate learners to advanced language learners, it'll shift and, and what you can expect of them will change. But the hardest thing for me to grasp was how how meaningful a word has to be for my novice learners for it to stick in their brains. That some of those little words, even like the articles, L and La and Los and Las and Una and Una, blah, blah, blah. That the reason that my kids would make so many errors is because they don't have enough meaning for their brains to really latch onto it and hook them in. They can, they hook onto the things that you can picture that have like real hearty content and, yeah, and I think just maybe are, it's okay if they don't get it quite right. And I think that you make a good point about the meaning and the meaning of those little smaller, more intricate pieces of the language comes later. And I think mm -hmm. it comes with their understanding of the language too, because they might, they might know that the sentence means like, I want the cat. And then one day, maybe they're, you're talking about their pets or something. And they're like, well, wait, if that means I want the cat, how do 
you say, I want a cat. Ooh, I and love then it when can, they ask those questions, yes. it makes my little nerd heart happy. No. And then you can <laughs> teach into their, into their, their, what they want to learn and into their interest. And you, there's, you know, everyone in the class is going to get a, a great little grammar lesson. They might not all catch on to it or learn it at that point, but that one student who asked that question is probably now going to make a deeper memory of what that means because they had a meaningful experience with it. Yep. And I, and I don't shy away from those, you know, if they are in Spanish one and they, you know, it's their third day and they've got a question about, well, why does this one have us and this one have ace at the end? Why does this have O's? Like, why is it doing this? How do you say I ate something yesterday? Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. I don't shy away from that either. I think that's, no, I think it. that's great. It's and empowering. I think- Yes. And I think the idea that language is structured, how a textbook organizes it. I mean, I know that, you know, it needed to be packaged in a way that it could be sold, Mm -hmm. but that's not really how language works. And the way language really works. I mean, when you think about children growing up is, you know, they learn all the different tenses at once. Does that mean they can produce it accurately? Absolutely not. Um, But be they're being exposed to different tenses and that doesn't have to be hard or scary or overwhelming if we don't make it that way. If you don't make a big deal out of it, your kids aren't going to think anything of it. My kids were like, one day we were talking about likes or something and they're like, well, I used to like this thing. How would I say that? And I told them, I just told them, I didn't feel like it needed much of a explanation. And they were like, okay, cool. And then they, it popped up in their writing one day. Um, And so I think it's not, it's not a bad thing to dive into that when the students are asking for it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for sure. Awesome. Um, so I think those are some awesome ideas for what to do with what's already there. Um, so you talked about how you kind of eased your way into certain strategies and into developing kind of this toolbox for yourself. Are there a couple of specific, um, strategies that you might recommend that people try that maybe they could utilize things in their textbook for, or maybe aren't quite as scary, um, that, that were easier for you? You know, so the, the one that I started with first, um, that I heard it at the conference and it just made so much sense to me. And I thought, why am I not doing this already? Was they called it menu talk. And it was just the talk in the yeah. uh, comprehensible input world Correct. in case yeah. you're new there's, to it. There's all the, all the different Picture kinds of talk, talks. movie talk, menu talk, <laughs> trash talk. Just Stop kidding. Talk. I'll give a, yeah, I give a, I don't know. I don't know if that was Justin Silicon Bailey or Tina Hargadon. I heard that somewhere. I think it was Justin. I love it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so, so it basically works like this. You look at the um, lunch menu for the day at school. You tell them what they're going to have to eat. You maybe draw out the picture of the things on the board. Because you know they have strong feelings about school lunch. You bet they do. Right. And then you ask them, okay, so we're having nachos today. Who likes nachos? And at my school, they call them beefy nachos, (laughs) which sounds even worse than (laughs) than the usual school nachos. (laughs) So beefy nachos. Do you like beefy nachos? What, so what would you put on your beefy nachos? Who would put on the lettuce? And they get to give their input. Who would put on the sour cream? Oh, she's lactose intolerant. Me too. I refuse to tolerate lactose. (laughs) Well, and I think what's so great about what you're sharing now is, and what people can't see is when, because Jody and I are actually on a Zoom call right now and I can see her, is she's raising her hand as she asks these questions. And I think it's awesome because you could do this with students in the first week of school. Yep. And, and just by having visual aids and supporting what you're saying or defining words for them and just having them raise their hands to show 
they're understanding. And sometimes they'll, they'll raise their hand and then you'll like verify it maybe in English because yeah. you know, they're, they need that confidence boost. And then some kids will be like, Oh, that's what that meant. Never mind. But then they're still making those connections in their brain about the language. Yeah, and then, sure. you know, obviously if you have upper level students, you could just ask them open-ended questions. Um, and they, if they have the vocabulary or the language to, to provide more answers, you could totally do that. Or sentence starters or different mm -hmm. ways. There's different ways to scaffold that. So you could use this strategy in all of your classes. Well, and the beautiful thing is, you know, so with my Spanish ones, we, maybe it's just the actual name of the meal. And then as you kind of grow their confidence in it, then we get into ingredients. We get into flavors. We get into textures. We get into uh, did you used to when you were younger and how about now? And then what about, what about if it was at your, at your grandma's house? If your grandma grandma's beefy it, nachos, would you eat, it then? Would you eat your grandma's beefy nachos? <laughs> what if they weren't beefy nachos? What if they were, <laughs> what if vegan? they were tofu, not, yeah, tofu, <laughs> tofu nachos. nachos. I'd probably like them. I love tofu. But, you know, there's a ton of range and, you know, at the time when I started it, I was still completely reliant on my textbook and I felt like I was covering so many topics and so many um, of the high hitting things I had to check off by the end of the year that they heard them every day. And you know, anything is gonna get boring if you do it every single day. So maybe I just pick one day a week or two days a week to look at the menu. Um, the most but it interesting also kind of, meal. Yeah, right. Yeah. I think that's awesome. Okay. So menu talk, super easy. I mean, yep. um, and <laughs> you could even have like a what's for breakfast talk or what's for lunch. Oh, yeah. And you know, the who kids ate who, the healthiest breakfast today yeah. <laughs> or who, who didn't eat breakfast uh -huh. after class. Um, so besides menu talk, is there another strategy that you would say is probably easier to start with or implement? Well, because I had this pre-made stuff in the textbook, one really easy one for me was to just do picture talk, which again is just, it's just you making observations or asking kids to make observations. So before we get too far into how you kind of do your picture talk, yeah. I just want to, I mean, I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask you because it's only fair since I'm oh, interviewing no. you. <laughs> no, no. no, don't be terrified. Um, <laughs> but how would you handle this with a classroom full of kids? Would you all have them have a book out in front of them? Or how would you do this if you wanted to draw their attention to an image? Yeah. So I, I found early on that the actual physical textbook was kind of distracting. So even though we had a class set of textbooks, I usually ended up like putting it under a document cam and projecting it because for whatever reason, they paid so much better attention to just looking at me or I, you know, at one point I had, you know, with the teacher's guide, it came with an e-version so I could just bring it up. Um, and if I wasn't going to do that, I would always, have them put their finger on whatever I was asking them about because it just gives that tactile um, satisfaction of knowing you're with us. And if you're not with us, I can see you're not with us and we can get back together because it's okay to not be with us. Dude, my brain shuts off. Mm -hmm. I get distracted by the thing that is out the glorious window that I have in my classroom. And you mean like phones ringing or things that like, like can phone? distract you? Correct. Yeah. Accurate. So, so when you're, when you're doing picture talk a lot, I hear a lot of people say, well, you know, I can see you doing that with Spanish one, mm -hmm. but how do you do that with 
Spanish two or Spanish three or four, because, you know, if you're just saying like, oh, she's wearing a red dress, that's pretty elementary. Yep. Yeah. And uh, to kind of piggyback off that, it gets boring even for Spanish ones. Yeah. It, for it to be more interactive seems, um, seems preferable. A lot of times I'll be asking them to give options. So even if it was Spanish one, I'd still be saying, is she wearing a blue dress or is she wearing a red dress? And, you know, asking them to either tell the person next to them because they just heard me say it or just raise their hand or go to a side of the room or whatever. For my upper levels, then I can really ask him more complex questions like, what do you think she's looking at? Where do you think she's going? Yeah, like why what is she wearing a dress? That? Yeah, she, oh, she's all dressed up mm -hmm. and she's in a restaurant, but there's nobody across the table from her. Why is she there? And, you know, you get to ask more open-ended, deeper questions. And I don't care if the answer seemed even remotely correct because they're developing their own little sub-story. Um, and lots of times when we finish developing this little sub-story, they'll help me type it out. So we kind of have this cute little thing that goes along with it. Um, and it becomes a collaboration. We've, we've developed this scene together. And sure, not everybody's, not every single idea that every single student said was used, but everyone had their voice heard somehow. And it, everyone's voice is reflected somehow within what we've created together. Yeah, and I think that just engages them more in your classroom and builds mm -hmm. that community, um, which drives that acquisition. Because if their effective filter is lower and they are more comfortable and they feel like they're seen and they're heard and they want to be there, they're gonna acquire language faster. So I think that's huge. Um, I guess, I am not sure I have any other questions for you. I swear I thought of one like three minutes ago, <laughs> but my, my brain is really fried and I'm not sure why it's so fried. Oh yeah. Um, it's not like we have anything oh! interesting or crazy going on right now. I, right. There's not like a global oh. pandemic or anything. No, it's no, totally fine to expect my brain to be functioning normal. <laughs> Just like I said in my, in my episode that I posted on choosing to be resilient, like we're not going to mm. function normally. So you guys aren't going to get as high quality of interviews as if we weren't in the middle of a global pandemic. But hopefully you'll show me grace as well. Um, mm -hmm. But I guess my, my one question that I had is, since we did get talking, and we didn't talk about this ahead of time, I'm sorry. Um, since we did get talking about the different levels, yeah, and thinking about, you know, if all of your students have, are used to using a textbook, and have focused on a lot of vocabulary and traditional grammar, and that's just the situation they've been in, whether you as a teacher haven't been able to um, change any of your methods or you haven't known about it. Because honestly, like when I first learned about CI, I'm using air quotes, mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't know any of it. Yeah. Like, I'm like, duh, this totally makes sense. Have I, had I learned this in the first place, I would have been doing this the whole time. It would have been super so, nice. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of reasons why, you know, all the students have been, could have been using textbooks for, for many years. And if I'm a Spanish 4 student, and I've used a textbook that whole time, you're probably not going to be able to jump into asking me these higher thought questions, yep. in these kind of input activities. So how might you handle that if you have like a level 3 or 4 class that's brand new to using more of these comprehensible input strategies? 
Yeah. So uh, one of the first things is lots and lots and lots of praise. You know, they have to know I'm proud of them for what they are doing and for what they are understanding. It requires a ton of constant comprehension checks, even if those are in English, especially when I'm asking them more complex questions. And another thing is, if they haven't had CI from day one, your, what the interactions look like in a Spanish three and four class might look almost like what your Spanish two class is looking like. And that's okay. In fact, you are still doing them such a service by allowing yourself and allowing them to step back and have level appropriate um, interactions. They might have much more breadth and breadth of like um, vocabulary and grammar content understanding, but still not be able to understand longer stories or more meaningful real world kind of stuff. And that was the, the situation that I was in. Um, so allow yourself and allow them to have less open-ended interactions. Back it up and give them the either or options or multiple choice kind of options when you're doing um, you know, things with really strong visual cues. Draw everything on the board. Write the words in English on the board along with the Spanish and, and be really, really realistic about what they should be able to accomplish and comprehend. Yeah, I think that's huge. And I think the idea of you're better off playing it safe and oh providing gosh, yes. that extra comfort or that extra scaffolding and things because they'll build their confidence and they'll feel better about it. And in my experience, cause that's what I, I mean, that's, I had to do that too. It was just with, you know, students in middle school, mm -hmm. my eighth graders, when I first switched to this method, well, number one, they loved it. It's not always received well it's that way. It's not always loved, no. Um, and so that's why I think, you know, kind of easing into it can be a better thing. But my eighth graders, I mean, I was almost doing the exact same thing with my eighth graders a lot of the time that I was with my sixth graders. But because my eighth graders had more of that background knowledge, more of that vocabulary that was just in there, we were able to move through things quicker because they had the pieces. They just didn't yeah. know how it all went, meant, went together in a meaningful exactly. way. Yeah, it was like, and I, I had a similar experience where we started very slowly, but because they had such a breadth of knowledge and such, they, they had more linguistic competence. They had more more background knowledge of how the language pieces together, like you said. So yeah, they were able to really run with creating stories or talking about things they were going to do or had done. And we might be able to cover like the same basic ideas in the ones and twos, but you could absolutely see the effect of their advancement once you let them ease in and you didn't just freak them out and, you know, yeah. Yeah. I would, I would not recommend with students that have had, um, traditional textbook and grammar experiences in the past. And like, let's say you have them for four or AP, mm -hmm. I would not recommend probably just being like, Whoa, here we go. Now we're on a show. Yep. Like let's, you know, let's just kind of ease them in, build their confidence. Um, and you don't always have to do entertaining 
or wild things because I feel like that's a big a big reason a lot of teachers are maybe afraid to try some of these strategies is they feel like they have to put on a show or they have to have a certain personality type. And here's what I can tell you, both Jody and I are very calm when we're teaching. That doesn't mean that we don't have expression, that we don't engage the students and do that, but we would not be necessarily what you would consider like wild actors, like things like that. And that's just not who we are. Yeah. So that's awesome. We are, ooh. Yeah, my phone's ringing again. You got the phone Great ringing again. <laughs> what can I do for you today? Oh man, that's so crazy. Welcome again to real life. Real life. Because we can't be in school doing these interviews. So mm. we are in our homes. Accurate. Um, so yeah, we gotta, I want to wrap things up because I know we've been talking for a while. It's probably going to be longer, but hopefully you've gotten some things out of it. Um, Jody, I'm not sure if you have any final words that you want to add or just encouragement to anyone who's listening to this that you would want to impart on them. Yeah. Well, one thing that I think we've uh, mentioned a couple of times in this, which is you, you don't have to throw the baby out with bathwater. Uh, you can take one tool or one idea that you see and build your own confidence in it and give yourself the grace and the ability to kind of have it totally flop without, you know, throwing everything away that, that you can learn and hone in that one skill and then add on a couple more at a time uh, and still know that you're, you know, you are doing a really good thing for your kids and for yourself it's worth the investment in, in your own professional development, even if you are near the end of your career or if you're just starting out and you feel overwhelmed by the sheer vastness of seeing infinity ideas shared every week. Um, it's okay to pick one and turn off your social media for a week and not take another idea and stop saving them. Stop you know you're never going to look at them with all anyway. The unopened saves. I mean, uh -huh. yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and and I guess one one other thing that I would encourage you to keep in mind as you're doing this is that you will feel in the transition that this is being too teacher centered, but it's not. It is all about your kids. It is a hundred percent about their lives and their input and their communication and what they want to say and their voice. So even if the teacher is leading more of it and providing more model of language, you know, more maybe clocked hours talking during class than what your students are and, and you're not used to that, um, this is still an incredibly student-centered way to be teaching. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And I think that is an awesome reminder for everybody because I've seen countless people mention, you know, oh, my admin came in and observed my class and they told me it was teacher-centered. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just some misinformation and some misunderstandings about what this is. So Jody and I love helping other teachers. Um, if you can find us somewhere on the internet, because that's where we reside. That's where we um, live. <laughs> please, please don't hesitate to reach out or to reach out to the multitude of groups that exist or lane chat um, on Twitter if you like the, the Twitter verse. Um, yeah, hashtag lane chat. Um, it's a pretty awesome community of teachers who share their ideas and there is a community out here for you and we would love to help you kind of start making this transition into 
focusing more on acquisition and input in your class, no matter what you're using to deliver that input. So thank you, Jody, for being here today. Um, it was an awesome episode and it was an honor interviewing you. And I'm so proud to call you my friend and my colleague. Same. And I can't wait. Hopefully, hopefully you'll be willing to do more. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Anytime. Yeah. You gotta find me. <laughs> I'm Not like I'm going anywhere. All right. Well, thanks you guys for listening. And I hope that you've been able to pick up a few tips that you can take into your teaching or that you can pass on to people you know.